Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Our next guest is Alex Felice. Alex specializes in long-distance single and multifamily rental real estate, and has spent the last few years working in commercial underwriting. Alex has been studying and buying real estate for five years. He's an avid reader and known to have an intense personality. In this episode, not only do we discuss real estate, we also go into potential conspiracy theories, as well as some economics. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Alex and I had a great time recording. All right, I'm with Alex Felice. Alex, tell us a little about yourself. Thanks for having me. My name is Alex. I am a single and multifamily real estate investor. I buy in North Carolina. I've been doing it a few years. During the day, I work as a commercial loan underwriter, mostly for SBA. Heavily focused in real estate and doing a lot of social media exposure for that going forward. Alex is a blog and a website. It's called Broke is a Choice. Now, how'd you come up with that name? Only a few years ago, I was broke. <laughs> but 100% by choice, yeah. So like most Americans that live month to month or week to week in debt, or I got to go to work for a job I hate to pay for the BMW. It's a treacherous cycle. I had to get out of that. And that's a whole other story, but I had to get out of that. And I said, okay, I started learning personal finance, whatever. And then I started learning real estate. And I figured you can really change your life in a few short years with a little bit of education and a little bit of effort. It's really not that hard. Most of the damage that people do to their financial situation is their own fault. So when I started the website, my personality is very brash and I was a very good fit. Broke of the choice. So were you trying to go with a controversial name? Everything I do is controversial. Some of it's by design. Some of it is my nature. I have a deeply contrarian by nature. So everybody here is wearing nice clothes and I'm wearing ripped jeans and a pink t-shirt. <laughs> if I was in a punk show, I'd wear a suit. So that goes to the whole, you know, is it controversial? For me, it feels like a Tuesday. But yeah, I mean, I guess it does strike a little, how do I say, this guy's a jerk. Like, oh, Alex, he's kind of a jerk. Why would you say that? You know, because there's so many people that are broke and they don't think it's their choice. That is true. Yeah. So I saw something and what you said kind of jogged my memory on it. And it said, we're here, we're trying to be financially free, right? That's why we're in real estate and things like that. Basically what we were talking about earlier and it said your salary is the bribe they give you to give up on your dream yeah i mean i read a lot of nassim taleb he says anybody who thinks that w2 employment isn't slavery is either blind or employed uh <laughs> you agree with that well look i read a lot of economics and history the difference between w2 income and traditional slavery is actually not as different as people would like to think so yes i do Anything you can't do because of money or anything that you want to do, but you can't because you have an income or you need that income, if you're beholden to the paycheck, yeah, I mean, they own you. So it's just a different form. Yeah. If you're beholden to a job that you don't like or barely like or only do it you know, because you have the bills, you're owned. Let's talk about your brand and your image and yourself. When did you have the self-realization that you're a contrarian, you started to go against the grain and Things like that. Oh, God, when I was 15. 
Yeah, my parents, I had to leave at 18. And I never went back. I found out early I was a contrarian. You know, when you're 16, you don't know it. People just think it's teenage angst. Not a phase, mom. <laughs> so it wasn't until I was older that I realized that that's okay to be kind of an outsider, like to always go against the grain. It's a difficult way to grow up, to just have a natural instinct to be like, whatever everybody's doing, I like to do the opposite. It got easier as I got older. Then I read a book by Christopher Hitchens called Letters to a Young Contrarian. Chris Hitchens is a brilliant fella. That book, it kind of helped me. Yeah, it's like, hey, I'm not the only one. And, and yeah, it is a fight. And that's okay. It's okay as long as you're willing to fight. Willing to piss everybody off along the way, then it's a perfectly fine way to live. So did it give you some things to cope? Like you said, you think you're on this island, and then you read the book, and you're like, holy crap, there's other people here. Yeah, there's few, but you find out you're the only one. Okay, but you also find out being a contrarian, it's like a natural thing. It's just whatever you say, my mind goes to disagree. I also grew up in a household of engineers. So my whole family is kind of in this way where, oh, you have a great idea. Okay, tell Uncle Craig. And he's going to be like, well, it's not going to work because of this, that, this, that, this, 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 and this. And then if you come to him and you're like, hey, look, I solved all those problems. He's like, well, I still don't think it's going to work. But you have to do it. If you can't do it in the face of my you know, opposition, then you can't do it. My dad's the same way. And so it's like everybody puts roadblocks in front of you. And then your job is to overcome them in the face of that, I guess, it's support, really, but it's also, it's manufactured adverse, and it helps. And that's kind of how I teach people now. I'm very tough love, and that goes back to the brokers of choice, where it's like, hey, look, I'm going to tell you straight up. These are the things that are wrong. You have to overcome them. If you can't get through me, I'm not going to actually try to hurt anybody, stop anybody, but if you can't get through my comments, then you're going to really struggle. So you're 18, you leave home, you join the Army. How did being a contrarian and basic training and well you know it was tough you're 18 you know like you think you join the army and you somehow become mature but you're still just an 18 year old idiot but the army helped but it wasn't until i was probably 30 that i really gripped with being okay with it for a long time it was just alex is kind of a dick (laughs) but now i actually it's really interesting now because now i find it to be highly 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 valuable because in the era of social media Everybody is telling the same story, and I have an opportunity where I look at people, and for 36 years of experience, I look and be like, I know how to think differently than what's common. That sounds arrogant. It's more like I can provide a message that I can see other people are missing. It also drives me to do things that are different, so I'm a big reader, so when people all really like a book or really recommend a bunch of books, I find books that other people aren't reading. Or strategies, like it started with the personal finance, right? Everybody's buying BMW, so I bought a BMW. Everybody's buying big houses, so I bought a big house. Everybody's buying nice clothes, so I bought new clothes. And it's like, that's not working. I know the end of that situation. It's, well, broke. Yeah, you're going to work for 65 years, always fussing about money, and then you're going to live off the government. Right. So you start off, you make 50000 you spend 50000 You make 70000 you spend 70000 And it just becomes a higher class of broke the more money. You- Your standard of living goes up. But I don't think that's what makes people that happy, to be honest. You know, I read a lot of philosophy. On the way here, actually, yesterday I read Carl Jung's Modern Man's Search for Soul. What do I think makes people happy? Freedom. And freedom is a difficult thing because people think it's a job that makes them free or not having a job. Or they think money makes them free, but it's not. It's like freedom is if you want to do something, but you cancel those plans because you want to make money like this. I came to this opportunity, and I love it, right? But it's like, if I was really free, I could just say no to everything, right? (laughs) 
The other thing is social freedom, right? A lot of people are constrained in their own minds and their emotions about they want to do things or they want to say things in public or they want to change their home life or they want to live somewhere else. Like all these factors that account to freedom, the social binds that keep people beholden to outside forces. And I don't know, happiness is a hard word, but undue influence by outside forces that sometimes they don't realize it. Many times they don't realize it and it stresses them out because it's not the things they want to do. It's so ubiquitous in society that they don't know it. And they think, oh, I got the weekend off. Now I'm happy. And it's like, yeah, that's not. <laughs> anybody who goes to work on Monday and is like, uh, Monday. Or anybody who goes to work on Friday and celebrates Friday. I got bad news for you, my friends. Like, this is no way to live. Let's tie this into the blog. When did you start to realize that people care about what you have to say? So I've been arrogant my whole life. It allows you to think that people care what you have to say. And they generally don't until you have actual some proof of your talents. And so it wasn't until I started buying real estate that people perked up because I always say that it's easy and it is. But in many ways, it's a difficult leap to change your mind to go off and buy one. Is that a societal difficult leap? Well, no. Some of it is societal because anything you do that's outside of the overwhelming norm is going to be more difficult for you because there's not that many people in your support system that are going to tell you that it's okay. They might say, yeah, whatever you want to do and da da da, but. If they haven't done it, they can't help you. So they don't know the pathway. So anything you do that's outside of the societal norm, you're going to have to do with a smaller group of people or by yourself. So it's going to be more difficult. But the transaction, like actually buying real estate, is incredibly easy. So once you get in the right mindset and you kind of understand how the financials of it work and the transaction, it's a breeze. And so I bought one, two, three, four, five houses. And then I was like, you know what? I had a buddy who was doing a blog and it was going really well. And I said, man, I still think think people are going to care what I have to say. So let me just start writing. And in some ways, very lethargic to just get your thoughts out. It wasn't a money-making operation. It was just, I've done this. I bought five houses. It's creating a little bit of freedom for me. If the job gets too stressful, I can quit now, right? So that alone gives you some breathing room because you're like, eh, I'm not going to let it stress me out because I don't need you guys anymore. So I started writing about it and I don't know anything about SEO and I'm not advertising. I'm not soliciting. I'm not really marketing. It's just kind of write it, put it on the internet and then share it with friends. And it picked up and just over two years now and one of the best things I've ever did in my whole life actually. So you were on a pretty big podcast, correct? I was on the Bigger Pockets podcast and that was a result of participating in that community quite often on the BP forums and I was just there for five years talking and you build relationships and a woman named Mindy, you like BP, you probably know who Mindy is, she reached out to me four or five years ago. I got a text message from her this morning actually. She said that I'm her best friend ever. And she's like, hey, I really like your advices, yada, yada, yada. And then we kept going. I started writing. I wrote for them a little bit. And then she flew into Las Vegas one morning. And she's like, hey, me and my husband are going to be there for one day. Do you want to get breakfast at 6.30 at a.m. on a Tuesday? And I'd never met her. And I said, yeah. And then uh, I sat down with her just like this. And I hyped her pants off for an hour and a half just doing my deal. And then she texts me after I left. She goes, I got to have you on that show. So before that happened, I had redesigned my website. It looks really good now. Brokersofchoice.com. It's my stupid face on the front of it. It's so embarrassing, but man, it's funny. People seem to really like it. I'm very transparent. I share all my deals. That's one of the things that I think gives me an advantage on social media in this way is I despise charlatanism. My website is not a funnel to sell you anything. There is nothing to buy on that website. I don't have a card coaching courses. I don't have an ebook. I am happy to teach you how to do real estate for free. In fact, you can go to my website and sign up for video chat and sign up uh, Thursday night to do video chats with strangers. 
and I've gotten deals from it, and I've helped other people buy deals from it. You know, I like being part of the community. So those are just ancillary benefits to starting the blog. Now, this is an interesting medium that you're on right now because everyone's doing a podcast. I tried podcasting and I realized that it's not for me. And that's an important thing to really know. With social media, you know, a lot of people don't partake at all, which is a gross error. People that don't Facebook, they don't Twitter, they don't blog, they don't podcast, they don't YouTube, nothing. Biggest mistake you can possibly make. So podcasting is exploding. Great medium to get in. But it wasn't a good fit for me. I did it for a whole year. I did two, two seasons, call it, and I couldn't do the production. I, I much like talking rather than interviewing. And it just wasn't a good fit for me, but you kind of got to go through that to find out. So 2020, I'm going to lean ultra hard on YouTube. I think YouTube's a lot better for me. The writing, I think, you know, Gutenberg with the printing press changed the world. And books are still being printed every day, where it is a long way from being obsolete. <laughs> Actually, I do mostly audiobooks. An underappreciated invention. I listen to Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene, and he narrates it. I mean, I don't know how you can learn better than that. And on your website, when you click on the books tab, the first thing you see is the highest return on investment. Is a book in your future? Are you going to write a personal book? Books are my favorite thing. And it is the absolute highest return on investment. Part of my problem with books is that most people almost exclusively read the wrong ones. Uh, <coughs> Self-help. <laughs> I'd like to write a book, but I don't want to write an autobiography. And I don't want to write something about real estate. So it has to be a cultural piece. And I do have some things written, started, but I think I have to get a, gain a few more years of wisdom before I can write something. So how many books do you read a year, would you say? Or listen to, consume? I do mostly audiobooks, but I do, do a few physical books. I think I'm going to clip probably... 50 a little bit this year and some of them are slogs some of them are deep i did capital in the 21st century great book on macroeconomics and the future inequality and that was like 34 hours on audio pretty dense but i love it and then i write little summaries about all of them and how long did it take you to finish the creature creature from jekyll island infuriates me because the culture around this book is a bunch of people who have never read anything about economics and they don't really know the history of how the federal reserve was formed Creature from Jekyll Island, I'll give a summary because most people haven't heard of it. It's a book about how the Federal Reserve was supposedly formed on this little island called Jekyll Island. The premise of his position is that the Federal Reserve was created as a secret weapon to use against the public with the tax of inflation. Now, I hate to admit this, but that's not that untrue. That's kind of the way it works, right? We are taxed with inflation. And in exchange, we get a top-down, essentially a, a socialized economic system. The problem with that book is that it's propaganda, right? It's propaganda by the really ultra-right libertarian movement, Erase the Fed, Gold Standard movement, which, again, you know, if you look through it, you're like, hey, look, if it, it sounds like it has some validity to it, but it's a misunderstanding of history. So I went off a super deep tangent. I have 3,300 words written on that. <laughs> it's worth it as long as you go in knowing that they're trying to sell you at once. It's like reading politicians' books the year that they're running, right? It's like you're not going to get anything except what they want you to hear out of this. <laughs> it's propaganda. We are going to talk a little bit about real estate. On your deals tab, you call house number one accidental landlord. So you kind of just stumbled into this? 2010, I was 27. I was an idiot, but I knew that buying was better than renting, which is an incredibly rudimentary way to look at real estate but not more right than wrong. 
So I bought a house, bought a condo. I didn't know anything about real estate or investing. And I said, oh, I can rent it out later. It'll rent for $650. My payment's $550. I'm making money. Oh my God, I couldn't be more wrong. So I lived in it, a little bachelor pad. And then in 2014, it wasn't until four years later that I can really make money in real estate. If I tried, not just you know maybe by accident. So I bought a foreclosure, which was a far better deal. I ended up moving into it and doing like a house hack. And I started renting that little condo. And that's how I became an accidental landlord. Because I figured, well, it's not a really profitable deal. It kind of breaks even after taxes. I probably come out a little ahead. But I owned it. I don't want to sell it. I used a VA loan to buy it, so I had no equity. And I was like, I can get experience. So in real estate, people, they're all chasing units and they're not chasing the education. And so, so many people in this country right now are, are paying the ass for student loans to go get an education when in real estate, you can do a lot that will give you the experience and the education and you can get paid for it. And so I look at that deal and it's like, yeah, I didn't really make that much money, but man... I'm deadly now. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you can break even and learn how to do these real estate transactions, you're far, far and away ahead of your the young peer that came out of college and I don't care what degree he has. And it's like, well, you're, if you're 50 grand in debt, you're, or God forbid, worse. Very thankful for the army. They paid for my finance degree. I don't know if it was worth it, but. <laughs> you said you bought the foreclosure. How'd you fund that? So 2011, I started getting my life together. And I started saving money. And I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it yet. But I knew that I needed a bunch of cash. And so I figured, maybe if I save up a whole bunch of cash, then opportunity will present itself. And that's exactly what happened. So I started saving money. So by the time I got to 14, I paid for the house. It was a foreclosure. It's on the MLS. It's $54,500. No, it's 55. I negotiated them down 500 bucks. It's pretty tough to get, yeah, and it's 2014, so the market was still a little... So I go in the MLS, I find this house, 54000 This is the part that you really can't do anymore. I go and see the house, house is fine. It seemed like somebody had touched it up. I said, hey, can I buy this with an FHA loan and just move right in? They said, yeah, it's good enough. So I moved in that house with a 3.5% loan. I think I came out of pocket, 2700 bucks. It's 2014, right? And I'm an idiot. This is my first deal. I'd been on BP for eight, nine months and burning them down and learning. And I had been saving money for a little while, so... I had some capital. So over the next year, I think I put five grand into it. A lot of sweat equity. I had learned how to build house when I was younger. So I put some laminate floors in it. And I had a guy put a fence in the backyard because I got dogs. And we made it look nicer just by living in it kind of thing. So 18 months goes by. And I got an appraiser out there. And I said, hey, what's that thing worth? I think I want to cash it out maybe. It's worth 115. I said, you know, I'm 20, I don't know, 9, 30. And I'm an idiot still. And I was like, well, now I know that any idiot can do this because I'm an idiot and I did it. And this is more money than I had ever seen, really. And I didn't cash out for the whole 115 because I was still afraid of debt. So I said, how about this? Give me as much money as I possibly can while keep my payment the same. Because I'm going to come off FHA and I'm going to go to conventional. So I'm going to drop PMI. And I'm going to drop the rate by a quarter percent because rates were still coming down. But I think I overpaid a little bit. So I said, I dropped the rate by a quarter of a point. I dropped the PMI off. I kept my payment the same. And I still pulled 21 grand in cash out. Tax-free. Yeah, because it's a loan. So I said, okay. <laughs> 2016, I go looking for a foreclosure. I found one through a realtor that I had been working with. I think I paid 44 It was a flip that the previous owner was trying to do himself and lost his part halfway through. Well, halfway is generous, more like 15 He painted a room. And so we went in there. It was a quite a learning experience. Like most new people, I had a kind of a lousy contractor and I didn't have property management then. And 
as the third house I bought, but it was still a little ugly. But we paid that one cash. We did a rehab cash and then we burned it. We did a cash out because I added, I built in 30% equity. They're all on my website. All my numbers on my website, very transparently. On average, my houses I'm all in for 65. They're worth about 100. So I cashed out and then I moved to Las Vegas in 2017. And then so I bought five more houses all long distance and the 24 unit. How did you get a GC, a general contractor that you trusted to work on these? Every dollar you're ever going to make is going to come from a human, right? The houses don't write checks. So I spend my time meeting people. I'm working at a bank, right? And a guy walks in, sits down. He's like, hey, I got 22 houses that are all paid off, and I want to get a commercial loan. Do you think I can do that? And I said, yeah, I think you can do that. Now tell me everything you know, because I want to learn how to get 22 houses. And so this guy became my friend, and he was a GC. He did all the work on his own properties. And so he didn't work on the third house because we were still building that relationship. And he, he hadn't really done it for that many other people yet. So I said, look, I'm going to do this with or without you. But if you do it, we can both make some money. He's a 20-year Army veteran. How to trust somebody is a difficult thing to teach. My saying is trust everybody. Just never put yourself in a position to need it. So what I did was I found a guy that I can, what I could say is, hey, look, if you do this, I'm going to buy more, right? And I'll take you along. We'll do it together. And I had already bought three. So incenting people to think about the long game is incredibly valuable, but it's hard because like we talked about earlier, it's like, I just got the bills. I got to pay this month's bills. So it sends people to take more than they should and think short-sighted. And it's also, it goes both ways, right? If you're somebody who shows up and you're like, I'm going to do this full time, da, 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 you should come with me. I'm going to buy 50 of these. And you're just, you know, talk is cheap. Getting started, that same GC is with me now. And now other people come to me and we buy houses together. I think I sent him 40 rehab jobs last year. Yeah. And so think about how to incent people to create aligned goals. The other thing is you got to have people you like. It's better to get somebody that's mediocre that you like working with than somebody that's really good that you hate because you can't look, work with somebody long-term if you hate them. So that contractor is still with me, very good partner, and he has a property management company. So I'm very lucky. Networking is the most important thing you can do, real estate second. Do you go to RIA meetups? How do you network? I do most of my networking online. And I've written about it on my website, how to kind of do these, some tips. I do go to a lot of RIAs. I kind of hate RIA in some ways because it's generally one person speaking and 30 people listening. And I'm not a good listener. Same reason why I said I'm tough on doing the podcast, right? <laughs> my ego, I just... <laughs> but you have to go to RIA. And what I do now is I start my own meetups. It works a lot better in my favor. You have to go to local meetups. You have to network online. And then the third part of it is now my opinion is you have to have your own social media platform of some kind. Right. So this is where the Twitter, the Facebook, the Instagram, the social media, it all kind of ties together along with the blog. And then you actually going and meeting people as well. Yeah. It's an interesting phenomenon when somebody knows you before they met you. That's a very weird feeling. Now, how does a guy like you who's self-described as cocky, how does that feel? Does that just fuel? Cocky is a persona. Arrogance is something else. I try to fight it. So it feels good. It's a very weird feeling though, because again, my contrary nature, somebody comes to me like, Alex, or they'll email me. My favorite one's like, oh, I think we're the same. I'm just like you. I read your thing. I'm just the same way. And I understand that. And I don't mean any disrespect to say that that's not a true thing because I do put that out there so people can identify and be like, yes, I resonate with this message and I connect with it. And so that is the main point. I don't mean to be disparaging when I say this, but when people come up to me, they're like, Alex, I love your stuff. I'm just like you, this and that. My first response is, you don't know anything about me. You just met me. 
<laughs> and does their face just drop? Most of the things I do is for reaction. I never do anything with malice, so. It's an interesting feeling when somebody thinks that they know you, and maybe they do. I don't know, that's a weird one to get used to. Yeah. So you, you bought eight houses, and then why the jump? Then to the 24? The answer to every business problem is scale. So the market's changed, right? Macroeconomics plays a bigger role in real estate than any individual ever will, in my opinion. So the deals are getting tighter because there's more investors because the money's loose. The money's cheap and it's been going on, right? And the foreclosure list from 2008 is starting to dry up because there's only so many, right? And so now there's more competition and less deals. So how much do you want to fight for one at a time? The other thing is I do Burr, which means I have eight mortgages. You only get 10. Now you can go off and you can get around the 10 Fannie loan rule with some creative portfolio refis and uh, you got to change for Schedule E to Schedule C and your tax returns and all these weird things. And it's like, you know, I can solve all these problems all at once. Because here's the deal. You solve all that problem, portfolio, da, 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 and then you're still buying one single family home. Nah, dog. So, <laughs> nah. So I was like, look, this is the problem. The problem started as, hey, look, when you get to 10, you're going to start to find trouble financing. You think about the answer to every business problem is scale. So I don't want to get around all that hassle to buy one more at a time. The problem tells you. The problem is saying, hey, look, we don't want you to have 10 of these because we think it's out of our risk portfolio. So the answer is go bigger. Go bigger. And in fact, the biggest problem I had with that 24 unit was it's too small by a long shot. I don't want less than 40 or 50 next time. And I think that's probably too small. Do you have a manager for the 24 units? Oh, yeah. I don't DIY. And you syndicated this deal as well, right? It was technically JV. Let me tell you how important that website is. People find me on Bigger Pockets. They find me on my website. And you can reach out and talk to me because I'm a regular, real dude. And I will respond to your emails or video chat or whatever. And so a guy emails me and he goes, hey, I want to buy a house in Fayetteville. You seem to know what you're doing. I'll just pay you like a consultation fee. So basically I'm doing turnkey, but instead of taking the 20 grand in equity, I take a really small cut and I let somebody else make money because I don't really care about the money. And now I have an amazing partner who knows essentially the sacrifice that I've made. Goodwill is worth more than money. So he bought two houses. We made him like 60 grand in equity. He's got cash flow. I've never met the guy. He paid me a fraction of that, right? And so then he emails me and he met me off my website. And so he emails me and he's like, hey, I got a 24 unit. I want to buy this, but I don't know how to close it. And by the way, I have all the money for it. You want to help? Yeah, sure do. So I ended up bringing some other partners in. All of the other partners came from either my website or my local meetup that I started. It was 100% organic through social media. So they were all people that I had talked to before, but nobody that I had known more than, say, six, eight months. And they had all met me through my website. And look, I don't do any SEO. I don't pay for Facebook advertising. I don't know keywords. I just write it and I share it and it's authentic enough that it gets shared. I'm not popular, but the right people find my message. I'm not trying to get everybody. That's not my game because not everybody's going to be good for me. So it's like, in my opinion, everybody has to find their people. So what's different about a one unit or a single family in the 24 unit? What lessons did you learn from buying that for someone that has you know, maybe they have eight, ten. They might be maxed out on their loans, and they're looking to jump up. Partners. That's the biggest difference for me. Is the single families are all mine now. My property manager is I call my partner. He is my lifeline through and through. But he has no vested financial interest in the deals. If I sell him, he's okay. If I buy something else, he's okay. If he leaves, I still have the property. With the multi-unit, in some ways, we talked earlier about freedom. You have to give up some of that freedom because now you're responsible to other investors an important responsibility to take seriously. So 
I took on investors. You got to make sure you got the right people. And you can look at a deal and you can sell the deal to your, maybe your one partner, or you can sell to the bank, but now you're going to have to sell that deal five, six times over. And when you're new at it, people are expecting you to be very thorough because they don't want to take a gamble on you. They don't want to just say, hey, he's got a track record. I'll trust him. Here's a hundred grand. They're a little more deliberate than that. So in that regard, having partners was the biggest difference. The transaction, I work in commercial lending. So the transaction was a, a boring Tuesday for me. I do this every day. So the transaction wasn't that exciting. The building itself, it was a little bit new asset class for us because it was single studios, essentially, one bedrooms. That was a mistake. I don't recommend that. I won't do that again. Property. It was a good way to get my feet wet, but it's like the accidental landlord, the first unit. It's like, hey, that deal kind of sucks. It's like, hey, look, I couldn't have done the other eight without that one. And so the multifamily is the same way. Your first deal is always your worst deal. So this is my first multifamily deal. Is it going to make money? Yep. Can I retire on it? No, probably not. <laughs> so is it still a C-class? Did you bring it up? Did you add any value? A uh, little, but no, it's going to be a C-class. It's bulletproof. That's what I like about that place. It's bulletproof. It's brick. So it can withstand a lot. There's not that much those tenants can do to it. So it's kind of like a cash king. Well, thanks for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it having you on. Tell everyone where they can find you, get in touch with you, how to reach you. Brokersofchoice.com. Alex, Felice. I spend most of my time on Facebook trying to antagonize people. You can find me on there. Bigger Pockets. I'm a very big contributor to Bigger Pockets. I write for their blog. I do videos on their YouTube. I'm a moderator on their boards. You can find me on there. And then my YouTube is new. Go there and make fun of me. It's really embarrassing. Thanks for joining us today, Alex. It seriously was a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If there are more topics you would like to hear about, you can email us at info at bluecollaryields.com. For more episodes, you can search Blue Collar Yields on Apple Podcasts.